on time today. Tucson? I hope not. We're full of surprises. Okay. We're always full of surprises. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get a chance to tell you that uh, there's another day another hotep is mad at me again. Okay. <laughs> Still mad about the same thing. Yeah, Can we interrogate this in the champagne room? Yeah, I guess we have to. <laughs> I think I need you and Pascal to do a deep dive breakdown for what I'm saying that's angering all these hoteps. Mm-hmm. Like, why are they madder at me than Pascal? That's the million dollar question. Yeah. Like I thought he was the Hotep angerer. <laughs> and you were the Hotep whisperer. Um, not quite. They don't like me either. everyone i am your host jason miles and welcome to another episode of this is revolution podcast thank you all for joining us before we start if you're new to the channel please hit subscribe and don't forget to hit that notification bell so you are alerted whenever we go live we're constantly adding cross streams with other channels and adding new shows we'll be doing more history focused shows with gene bajla and Derek barn called nailing it down and also people get ready for more white guy wednesday I promise we're going to get a better name for that show. Maybe we should have a contest to name that show. Um, I've, I've heard a few names. I know the last time we talked about that show with all those guys on the stream, you guys threw some great names in the chat. Maybe we'll figure out a way to get uh, some sort of contest where we can name it properly. Uh, also, if you guys are enjoying what we do here on TIR and would like to have access to the champagne rooms, uh, and patron-only events like our upcoming movie night this Friday. There's only one way to become a patron. For as little as $3 a month and $30 for the year, you can have access to the Champagne Rooms past and present, be a part of the live audience for the Mau Mau Hour, and so much more. Let me bring in that so much more right now. Please welcome my homie, my dog, my co-host, my pal, the man of the Mau Mau Hour. He is the Pascal Robert. 
Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. How are you? Doing all right. Doing uh, well. Let's also bring in the super producer, the faceless voice of reason, aka the woman on the show, M. Tucson. Hello, hello. Good to see my boys in print. <laughs> nice little plaid, very cute. Okay, now maybe you had some foresight or you just knew. Now I feel like I should change my shirt. Too late. It's cute. I, You're like little cufflinks. Both <laughs> Pascal Tucson told me to change my shirt the moment I got on screen. She goes, change your shirt now. And I was like, I'm not, you know, I'm not just because you said it, I'm not going to do it because I'm going to be difficult. And here you are wearing plaid. I'm wearing plaid. So we look like an optical illusion on the screen. It's cute. <laughs> Guys are adorable. That's not the goal we're trying to achieve here. <laughs> Too late. You speak for yourself. <laughs> I'm well, always I mean. trying to adorable. Okay. <laughs> Pascal's like, I don't have to try. <laughs> wow. Do you see what JB is saying about my shirt buttons, Tucson? What is it? You're extremely reluctant buttoner. <laughs> that's because that's because Jason is actually a reincarnation of a 70s disco dancer. That's why. <laughs> Johnson Walter moves. He was in Saturday Night's Fever. It was about him. He was John Travolta. You guys are so mean. So mean. Maybe from here to here is just really hot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Heat radiating from the man's penis. Jesus. <laughs> it's on fire. I guess it's like, what? <laughs> what did I agree to? <laughs> if the guest has not watched the Saturday show with Frenchie Davis, then I suggest everyone go back and watch that show. Oh, my goodness. Excellent show. It was a, it was a very good show. But today we're talking about something near and dear to Pascal's heart, and that is the manosphere and its relation to Jordan Peterson. Is that right, Pascal? That's what we're talking about. It ain't that near to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> you used to get so mad at Kevin Samuels. I actually died. knew about him before most people realized who he was, and then he died. Are you mad about that, hipster? I mean, I mean, <laughs> he died. I didn't like the guy. But uh, he was on my radar for a long time. I was not a fan. Uh, well, there's a through line with Jordan Peterson and these characters. You know, Jordan Peterson rose to fame as a bit of a prophet for a disaffected, downwardly mobile white youth in the minds of many. But why does the pull up your pants misogynistic message resonate with so many people of color as well? Without Jordan Peterson, we don't get the viciously heinous Andrew Tate and the like. Uh, 
What is it about Peterson's philosophy that resonates with men? To help us with this quandary, we have brought back Colin B. Anthes. Colin Bruce Anthes is a Canadian artist, educator, and organizer. He teaches at various post-secondary institutions, does grassroots organizing with community wealth candidates, and is a contributor to the Analyst.News. Please welcome Colin Bruce Anthes. How's it going, Jen? Welcome back. Welcome back. Thank you. Hmm. Shall we uh, dive on in? Should we uh, dive on Pascal in? definitely has some some setup questions for this um, because you know we have private calls all the time, and uh, <laughs> some of those calls are taken up about uh, his frustration with the. I don't want to segregate the minosphere, but I guess it is kind of segregated, right? Isn't there? Would you say mm-hmm. there's a black one and a white one and a Multicolored one, Pascal. What would you say? Well, I definitely think there are ethnic contingencies mm-hmm. and co- communities in the manosphere, without a doubt. But the first thing I want to say is that uh, Con, uh, your first appearance when you talked about uh, Jordan Peterson was very, very, very good. I got great uh, responses by people who watched it, and they felt it was a very effective explanation of what motivates him. But in in regards to uh, uh, Professor Peterson and the manosphere. If you can elaborate for our audience, what is it exactly about Jordan Peterson's message that you think resonates with particularly disaffected young males in the West? What is the what is the crux of what he's saying that resonates with them? Um, yeah, I mean, I, a lot of it. He actually is. He's he sort of says himself. I don't think there's that much controversy that he's reaching out to these people who are looking for answers at a time when. Uh, they're, uh, the world that they've grown up in has completely kind of abandoned them in many different ways, and nobody else seems to really care about them um, because we're still re- we're still dealing with a lot of the issues from a time when they ruled the roost at the same time. Uh, so now that there is this growing group of disaffected men, um, his message resonates with them because they're looking for some kind of answer as to how to get a grip in this neoliberal world. Uh, but the thing that in particular, uh, that that I think is really influential about this, the fact that he's congregated so many men and so few women around him, is that it speaks to how Jordan Peterson has become such a huge longstanding phenomenon in, in the first place. A lot of the cred that he has as a public intellectual is based on this idea that when he is speaking about things that kind of sound like they have to do with psychology, which he uses to rope in these big audiences of disaffected men, going into uh, Jungian psychoanalysis and these strange tangents. And then he goes into this, um, uh, these theories he has about secret motivations that other people have. As we discussed last time, he does this a lot with socialists, ties it to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, George Orwell's The Road to Wigan Pier, suggests that his uh, um, advocacy of hierarchical corporate free market capitalism is coming from his understanding of um, uh, evolutionary psychology, that a lot of people have been listening to this and thinking that in those moments, he is speaking as a professor of psychology, and this is what psychology is. Now, uh, when people who are trained in psychology are listening to him do this, they're absolutely cringing. Uh, This is the stuff that he's supposed to be teaching people to never, ever do as a professor of psychology. And when people are um, uh, trained in psychology, they know this very, very well, and they know that this is the kind of thing that ever since Uh, Karl Popper brought in the falsification principle. They had to work very, very hard to get out of psychology. We're talking 80 years ago. 
uh, to get it taken seriously as a social science rather than a pseudoscience. Um, but he's able to go bonkers with this and he's able to go as far as he is and still have be, be viewed as a public intellectual because of the fact that there's so little crossover between the people who actually are studying psychology in universities and the people who are interested in learning about psychology from Jordan Peterson. So you get this circular effect happening. Uh, the Venn diagram has basically no crossover. In the universities, about 80% of the people enrolling in psychology departments are women. And according, I'm getting this number from Jordan Peterson, by the way, I'm getting this right from him. According to him, about 91% of the people watching him on YouTube are men. So these demographics are as like, I don't know if the, the gender gap was that big when it was suffragettes versus anti-suffragettes. <laughs> like it's as big a gender gap as you can get. And that's because there's really no overlap between these two groups. Now, slowly people are starting to catch on to the fact um, that he's spewing a lot of pseudoscience and that he's viewed as doing so by psychologists and by people who are studying psychology. But it's taken a really long time for that to catch on uh, because there's no overlap in these groups and he is surrounded by this manosphere. So it's not just that his message reaches out to these disaffected men. It's that there's a feedback loop here. Um, it's built in for him to keep gathering these people and for there to be no sort of way for that to um, for that image to, to break as a public intellectual speaking about psychology, people don't know when they're in his group that he has completely departed from the practices of psychology. What exactly is the controversy about his licensure in Canada? Apparently, he's been gone a recent Twitter storm about how they're coming after his license because of certain activity he's engaged in on social media. Are you aware of the details of that? What exactly a is behind? Bit. Yeah, um, so... Uh, basically, it's it's pretty straightforward. He's been asked to take a couple of sessions on training for um, kind of considerate social media use. Um, it's been turned into a huge controversy because people are saying that he's being policed in terms of his freedom of speech and so on and so forth. Um, there is a conversation to be had about when one can ever regulate what people do outside of their work hours and their social media or what have you. Uh, but it's actually, it's not a really big thing that he's being asked to do in terms of keeping that license, which he doesn't use anyway. It's about, it's about the cred. Um, but um, the, uh, the, what you'll hear when you're talking to other psychologists, and they've been posting about this, is that um, whatever you might think of that policy, it's not the case as people who are following Peterson seem to believe that he is being sort of hunted because of his political views here and because he's a high-profile right-wing figure. Um, on the contrary, uh, if it had been another psychologist who was, who was engaging in the kind of behavior that he does on social media, which you can think whatever you want of it, but it's not exactly the stuff that you would expect of someone who's a clinician in this field, um, that anybody else would have probably been contacted to get some social media training way earlier. Uh, and that's the way the other psychologists are saying are seeing it. They're seeing it that actually the college has been reluctant to go after Peterson and ask him to do this training because of his high profile and because they sort of knew it would turn into a huge controversy that he would he would position himself as a martyr because he does that fairly routinely. Um, but um, it's it's really just that whatever one makes of it, it's not something that is unique in it being asked of Jordan Peterson to do this. Doug, Jason, you want to jump in? Yeah, I want to ask the question of... I don't want to focus too much on Jordan Peterson because I think he's kind of a starting point for this universe that... Uh, I don't know if he created it, but he's a major part of it uh, being 
pretty strong and having a, a pretty substantial pull. Um, where does someone like Andrew Tate, in your opinion, you and Pascal, I'd love to get your guys' opinion on this. Hmm. Where does Andrew Tate fit in? Because even someone like Kevin Samuels didn't have the, I don't want to say financial know-how, but the ability to monetize this rhetoric. So even with Peterson, you get massive speaking fees, speaking in arenas, um, as someone that does live shows in very small venues, there's a massive difference between a, a 8,000 seat arena and a, and a 200 seat, uh, club. Uh, so without Jordan Peterson, though, I don't think you get Andrew Tate, but Andrew Tate went on a whole nother level with being able to monetize this way of thinking. Yeah. Um, Colin, your opinion, how does Peterson give us Tate? Um, so I, I don't know how direct the links are between Peterson and Tate in particular, but what I see with Peterson in general is that he's a very standard sort of right winger. Um, and the way that he's a standard right winger is that he has a huge double standard in that, like a lot of other standard right wingers, and you know, this is where they are most dangerous in history, it's not actually how right wing they are themselves or how attached to the furthest right-wing members they usually are. Sometimes they actually see those very far-right members um, as being kind of gross. Uh, but it has to do more with who they're willing to build a coalition with. And they will often work with very far-right-wing voices when it comes to push, when push comes to shove and they need a coalition. They will often work with the furthest right-wing voices before they will even work with moderate leftists. And that's what we kind of see with Peterson over and over again, that he'll often gesture as if he's not really that far right, and he'll say this over and over again. But then you look at the groups that he's constantly overlapping with, constantly overlapping with, including in positions where he can monetize from it, and it's back into that far-right coalition. And so that's where I see Peterson uh, linking to very, very far-right figures. Whether he is that far-right himself in his heart of hearts, I don't know. Um, but I know that he's got the same kind of double standard that we've seen from so many other standard right-wingers throughout history. Pascal, what's your take? I think in terms of Andrew Tate, I think Andrew Tate is a bit, is different in one significant way is that Andrew Tate does not uh, market himself as an intellectual. As a matter of fact, I would argue that he markets himself as an anti-intellectual. I think that one of the reasons why he is so appealing is that he makes his his presentation seem like it's an instinctual, almost natural way for which men should engage and deal with women. Mm -hmm. So that it doesn't require any kind of like cerebral analysis of any kind of historical data, facts, or anything else, but simply just making reductionist arguments about listen, things are better when men lead and women can't, and that's the way it should be. And you know, you know, you don't want your woman to be doing this and sleeping around. I mean, it's all rooted in this kind of like reactionary notion of like you know, a woman's place is here and a man's place is there, and that's the way it should always be, because that's the way it's always been. So it's divorced from any kind of understanding of history or anything else. And it appeals to a sense of loss. I mean, one thing about Andrew Tate as well is that he's very, very misogynistic, violently so, brutally so. And that level of appeal that he has, from my observation, demonstrates that the men that are attracted to him are really on the brink of being pushed in directions that can be problematic. And that someone who says such ridiculously just 
abusive things about women all the time can have such a large audience. From my analysis, demonstrates that it's not difficult to take these disaffected young men and sway them in a direction, whether it be politically or, or organizationally, that has actual tangibly, tangibly hardcore uh, results. Hmm. Tucson, did you want to add something? Would we consider Peterson a gateway to Andrew Tate? I think so. I mean, yeah. if you listen to Jordan Peterson, he talks in a garbledy gook language of nonsense, especially when he gets into like double helix and and he starts to try to do that Jungian stuff. Yeah. Uh, it, it gets very confusing. Uh, when you listen to, in my opinion, the disciples of that rhetoric, Mm-hmm. The late Kevin Samuels. Uh, who else is one of these Manosphere people, Pascal? Oh, fr- oh f- fresh and fit. Some of the podcast in Miami that's big on that. I mean, that stuff gets overly simplified, but it's still 12 simple rules. It really is just 12 simple rules. An overly simplified version of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the, 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 the main premise is that, you know, "Quote unquote," modern women has tra- have transgressed their boundaries. They don't know their place anymore, and they don't know. You know, they they have defied their roles. And the the, the one of the problems that I have about these these uh, the whole manosphere discourse is that no one explains exactly what obligation do women have to fulfill the roles that these men are ascribing to them. Like, why exactly are these women mandated to do what these men tell them? Like, that's a question I was wondering. Like, why exactly should these women be behaving the way you want? Whether it works for them or not. Like, why do you care? If you want to find other women, do so. And one of the things I always find interesting is that if it's the women that are so miserable, why are you guys doing all the shows complaining about the women? (laughs) (laughs) Miserable woman, do you have a response? Um, <laughs> sorry. Well, miserable woman says what? <laughs> when you um, when you listen to what they have to say, and you abandon the modern woman lifestyle, then you get to be happy. You wear dresses, you stay at home, and you do what's supposed to be easy. Um, you certainly don't consider motherhood the hardest job in the world. Your husband is doing the hardest job in the world, whatever that is. I don't know. Pascal and I heard uh, about how hard motherhood was uh, <laughs> a few weeks ago. Just leave it there. Yeah, just... That um, that being said, yeah, there's females in this space as well. Um, yes. We can't act like Jordan Peterson speaks strictly to men. This is not quote-unquote locker room talk. Uh, and this is only anecdotal. I do not have any data to back this up, but I am Neither seeing. Do they. Oh, I'm sorry. Neither do they. Neither do they. That's fine. <laughs> well, then I should lie, like our friend Jordan. Um, <laughs> people say no, but seriously, I've been finding on um, on dating apps, as I am on them, sadly, uh, or goodly. But anyway, uh, a lot of a decent amount of women say they either like Jordan Peterson. Or they say they want a traditional man and a traditional relationship. 
What does that mean? They want to have a man subsidize their lifestyle and not work. Oh, okay, Jordan. Uh, Colin, what mm-hmm. is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we have to remember that um, if I'm, I was scanning over this pretty quickly in my opening statement there, but one of the things that happened was we lost the um, family wage. Mm-hmm. Uh, we lost the family wage and we haven't replaced it. But if we had had, like, if we were to go back to the conditions that we had in the mid 20th century and we were to have equality between the sexes, then it would be a situation in which two partners of whatever gender background um, working 20 hours a week each and sharing the housework, and that would buy a house and a car and come with a pension, and uh, you could comfortably retire and support a family of four. So, and that, that would be for high school graduates, or actually about an average of like grade 10 and a half education grade 10 and a half, grade 11 education. So we have had this massive decrease decrease in our ability to um, have a kind of comfortable family living and have relationships that are within that economic context. We've created some forms of more equality between men and women, sort of, but in a sense that now it's very hard for two partners both working to be able to uh, own homes, support families, save for retirements, uh, even if they're both college educated. So and it was interesting. There was a group, um, they're called the Compass Group or something, the Compass Group for America, something like that. They're a right-wing group. And they were doing an economic study that came out maybe a month or two ago. Um, and they were obsessed with something that's not a particular priority of mine, but of male breadwinners being able to support families. And they started changing the economic measures because what we usually get when we talk about wages is a measure based on the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. Um, And that's just an aggregate of everything in the economy from transportation and housing costs and what have you to luxuries and things that you can buy in Walmart. And so we'll often hear that wages are stagnating or they're not going up as fast as they should be. But almost nobody suggests that the wages are going down if you're listening to economists because they're using this general aggregate. What does your dollar buy of random stuff? Well, they looked at what it would cost to support families and cost of living costs in 1985 for a high school educated worker. And they were looking at the male, the average male worker at that time and fast forwarded to the present day. And they found if I, I'm, I'm, I, I might be getting these numbers a little wrong. This is what I remember off the top of my head. I don't have the study in front of me, but they found that um, something like 14 weeks before the end of the year, a high school educated worker in 1985 would be able to support family. Whereas today they get to the end of the year and they'd be about 10 weeks short. So we've seen that ability completely fall off the map. And their conclusion was that neoliberal economics are actually not very good for right-wingers, even though we think of neoliberal economics as being right-wing economics. Um, So what we've had is that economic foundation completely crumble. We've tried to change the social relations. And this is something that um, Dr. Harriet Fraud from the Democracy at Work Institute and the Capitalism Hits Home podcast goes into Mm -hmm. a lot. Um, So a lot of what I'm talking about here is stuff that she's gone over in much more detail. But in general, we had that economic foundation disappear and we tried to kind of cobble together something that was called equality under conditions that were exploiting both men, women and people of other gender identities far more than they were exploited in the past. It's really shown up in the cost of living measures. 
And that means that a lot of people have this fantasy of kind of going back to the days when things were more secure, uh, but it shouldn't, like we should be able to have that security and it is possible to get that security again, but it doesn't mean going back to uh, those traditional relationships. But you can understand why there is that craving for those traditional relationships from men, from women, from, from people of different backgrounds when they've seen all of the security that that represented. And like, you know, I, I, when I was 20 years old, I assumed that I was pretty close to when I was going to start having kids. Now I'm in my mid thirties and I like, don't even think about it. So like, I understand how people who have those kinds of desires might associate that with kind of an the the leave it to beaver model and want something like that back in some way yeah but the thing is really ironic that was the leave it to be the leave it to beaver model mm -hmm. is a direct consequence of policy largesse that comes out of the new deal and the mm -hmm. greatest expansion of the social welfare state of america has ever had the nuclear family. it was social democracy right right it was social democracy it was, it, yeah it, you just it, couldn't call it that because of the Cold it War. was literally yeah. the closest thing to social democracy that we've ever had in the united states and what's ironic to me about people like Jordan Peterson and all these other uh, manosphere guys who claim the virtues of capitalism is that as much as they talk about cultural Marxism, and it's the left, it's the left, is that the economic system that they claim to love so much is what has cannibalized the quality of life that they are complaining about. It's caused them to be so pauperized and have so many young yep. men unable to get married, unable to have children, and unable to start families. So how do they rationalize political economy? In other words, how does Peterson explain the role of political economy in the immiseration of young men well I, I, and i, and I yeah. kind of want to expand on that because they also speak to capitalism as if the people they're speaking to are capitalists when they are not these people do not own capital um i had a very good uh, patron call uh, we have you know if you're a certain tier patron you get to talk to somebody in the show and uh he brought up an interesting point that you know you never hear the lords of capital call themselves capitalists but you often hear people mm -hmm. that own no capital call themselves capitalists. And there's something to be said about uh, how these people speak to the evils of redistributive policies um, that really, you know, shows you that neoliberalism is going nowhere, regardless right. of whatever people want to say about capitalism's in the last stand these are the you know the end days of the empire well, maybe these are the end days of the empire i won't argue that but the system itself ain't really going anywhere because these things seem to reinforce it um more than ever uh, on a whole yeah. different level uh, what, what what do you guys have to say about that but uh, okay, you want to you want to jump in um, no, I was I was going to pretty much agree with that, but um, I was going to say a, a couple of other things here uh, that that sort of chimes into to uh, on top of what you were saying there. You know, one of the points that I make when I and I should mention that a lot of my um, uh, work talking about Jordan Peterson has actually been turning people who are are Jordan Peterson fans into socialists. That's how I really kind of <laughs> got started on this. Um, and one of the things that I would begin with because they don't want to hear about Marx, they don't want to hear about feminism, they don't want to hear about social justice, they don't want to hear about you know, any, anything that has any of that language associated to it, is I'll start with the um, straight white men, uh, classical, uh, obsessed with individualism, Western individualism, coming into the industrial era. And I'll start with uh, like John Stuart Mill, John Dewey, Bertrand Russell, and say, what were they saying as we come into the industrial era? And what they were all saying 
was that if we were going to preserve individualism after the era of self-employment, then each individual worker obviously had to be enfranchised with basic democratic rights in the places in which they lived or places in which they worked. And if there were going to be elements of hierarchy, like um, uh, boards of directors, chief executive officers to help organize those companies, then obviously those people would have to be elected by the people who worked in those companies and accountable to them. And they were absolutely explicit that that meant the end of capitalism, the end of what they called the tyranny of the employer. Uh, and as Bertrand Russell put it, he said, capitalism and the wage system are twin monsters eating up the life of the world and must be abolished. You know, they were absolutely blunt about this. And that was what they saw as the individualist tradition coming into the into the industrial era. And then I branch out from there and I start going through Jordan Peterson's sources, what they actually say versus what he says they say. And then I make my way through all kinds of other sources. They're by that time pretty open to Marx and various others. And I'll get into contemporary feminists who, uh, for instance, will bring up that um, after, as the Me Too movement really exploded, uh, that the biggest worker cooperative in the United States is Cooperative Home Care Associates, which is 90% women. And it really makes it look like the kinds of structures that enable a Harvey Weinstein and enable a, uh, uh, a Roger Ailes uh, to have unelected power over the livelihoods of the people that they coerce into these abusive relationships or abusive situations, uh, that those are not necessary evils uh, on an, an economic level. So there is first the question about distribution in the first place and then redistribution. And none of that is actually on Peterson's side. The, the distributive side, the redistributive side, all of that is he, he, he's relying on redistribution to suggest that capitalism is uh, some kind of viable system. Really, I mean, what systems to the right of like Jimmy Carter do we associate with a high standard of living? Practically nothing anywhere in the world. Um, but if we're going into the people who were even sometimes conservative towards the government and conservative conservative towards redistribution, but we're at the top of this, um, uh, uh, we're at the top of the food chain, the least marginalized voices as we come into the industrial era and we're talking about what kind of enterprise is individualistic. Well, they were for abolishing capitalism altogether. So uh, Peterson really doesn't have a leg to stand on on any of that trajectory as I see it or other accolades like him. What exactly do you, what do you think causes Peterson's ability to evade, have his politics be evasive in the consciousness of people? He always says he's not a, he's not a conservative. He's not a right wing. Why do, why, why is it so hard for people to actually pin down what his politics actually are? Um, sorry, that just clicked out for me for a quick second there. Could you repeat that? I said, why do you think? Because is from what I see, Peterson always claims that he's not a right, he's not a member of the alt-right, he's yeah. not a conservative, that he's actually a liberal. Why do you find that people actually give him the credence to allow him to characterize his politics as quote unquote liberal as opposed to being the right-wing reactionary that he is? Why yeah, do, because, why do you get away with that? Uh because and this is um, you know, it goes back to uh, what John Dewey talked about in liberalism and social action, where there was this, it's very close to Marx's critique that where he talks about the bourgeoisie being the most revolutionary class of all time. But there was this period of time in which um, liberalism kind of meant the tearing of the old world asunder. And then the people who got ahead in the new system suddenly didn't want systems of questioning power and changing things and what have you. So they started to call themselves classical liberals meaning particularly allegiance to like John Locke and figures before industrial capitalism actually really took off, but are considered kind of the bedrock theorists 
of uh, the industrial capitalist era. So um, what he's doing is the same thing that we've seen done uh, by these paralyzers for the last 150 years, which is they hearken back to theorists that are supposedly um, the foundation of Western civilization and say, you can't change anything from that and say there's nothing. Edmund Burke, I see somebody putting in the, in the uh, comments there, absolutely. Uh, but they hearken back to these, these figures that are before the era of industrial capitalism. And they uh, say, well, you know, this is the foundation of our society, so we're not being radical. We're not being far right. And they try and use that to kind of dismiss everything that happened afterwards, which completely goes against um, what their uh, what their what their positions are, um, so like they have tricks to do this, and those tricks have been around for 150 years, and they've been crap for 150 years. So another question I wanted to ask you: Can you explain how Jordan Peterson uses the trope of cultural Marxism to to be the uh, kind of the boogeyman as the cause for all the crisis of men of the men that he's talking to and society overall? What exactly is his beef? With Marxism and how does he use this kind of ridiculous right-wing trouble like, oh, it's the cultural Marxists right. that are yeah. out behind everything that's going on. Yeah, well, his theory is going to be that he, he's going to, what, what he does is he um, claims that the uh, Marxists were snuck in the back door by the postmodernists and they've taken over the academy and everything radical that people see or everything that makes a lot of noise that people see he's going to associate with. And, and when he actually is is questioned about this, like his answer is, that basically anything that has some kind of oppressor oppressed um, rhetoric or aesthetic to it or what have you is at its root the same thing as Marxism, which is like, and you could say about everything that he said, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, what he does is is basically um, he ascribes Marx to anything that these people don't like or that these people encounter and and have moments of antagonism with. Um, and so he turns Marx into a boogeyman. Now he's got, again, like, he's very good at creating these constellations that sort of, he pieces all of these things together. Uh, so it sounds like there's a lot more to it than there is. And he's not actually piecing them together. He's just kind of saying one thing after another. So that he'll, he'll use like Cold War tropes. And then he'll talk about like postmodernists and he'll talk about social justice warriors and he'll talk about he'll throw Marx in there and he'll say something about like Mao killing a bunch of people. And he'll sort of he just kind of throws it all together. Uh, but the reason this is very appealing and this is why I really went into the road to Wigan Pier, which is where he really creates a kind of insular cult by saying that, well, socialists have a secret motivation. Uh, they don't really care about the poor. They just hate the rich. And that it's a, a, a motivation of revenge bred by failure against the successful or anyone who isn't at the bottom of the dominance hierarchy. What he does here, it's very, very clever. It has nothing to do with the road to Wigan Pier, as I, I went through last time. But he, what he's doing here is he's setting up these people to have this narrative that actually what they're doing is protecting society from the gulag and giving it some huge glorified narrative. Um, and that's why it's, that's, that's, you know, the, the reason he's allergic to the, to Marx, I think is primarily because, you know, Marx is an obstacle to everything that he represents, but the reason he's going after cultural Marxism is because he can kind of feed in all of these crazy conspiracy theories. Obviously he's not the first person to do so, um, but it's, uh, he's able to mix this up in some kind of grandiose meta narrative that he and his followers are actually fighting off the gulag in our society and are saving society from authoritarian regimes. And we've got to hold these cultural Marxists back because they're motivated by a murderous spirit of revenge. 
So that's that's the appeal of it. That's why he's that's what he's put up on a pedestal. That's what he's elevated to some kind of grandiose scale. Uh, and and that's the term that he's using, or postmodern neo-Marxists is th these terms that he's using to um, uh, to throw that into some kind of of popular jargon. Is that easy to do in this current moment, where maybe more so than ever, our personal experience is going to trump any sort of fact whatsoever? Um, so so for example. Um, I, I joked about it in our cold open of the show. Uh, there's an old uh, uh, false tale. I don't want to say false tale. Uh, 15, 16 years ago, this woman released a press release that she said that she won the largest uh, settlement in history for... Uh, uh, what do you call it when you steal someone's words, Pascal? Plagiarism. Uh, plagiarism. plagiarism. Mm -hmm. She said she wrote um, um, The Matrix and The Terminator movies. <laughs> and uh, she says she won a billion-dollar settlement. She released a press release. No news outlets picked it up, but one <laughs> very small news outlet picked it up in Utah. They ran it. It ended up catching crazy fire. No one ever printed their retraction when they saw that it was all fake, when they saw that a legal case had never even happened. Um, the woman went on speaking tours after the fact. The case was uh, uh, was dismissed by the court. Actually, the Wachowski brothers and the lawyers, whatever film company that was, um, did get uh, were awarded damages for their legal fees, which were over three hundred thousand hmm. dollars. No one's ever read that woman's book or <laughs> books. It, she had a website. I don't know if it's still up. Um, no one knows the case. But everyone can talk about it, and everyone has an opinion on it, right? Yeah, which I find fascinating. Yeah, and that seems to be kind of where we are with Jordan Peterson and cultural Marxism, and again, the the people of this ilk in this manosphere. Definitely, when they start talking about redistributive policies, and as you say, saving right. people from the the mythical gulag, right. um, I don't need to have facts; I just have my personal opinion. Yeah. And that becomes even stronger than the truth to the point where you won't even read it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's I think that that's a major um, I, th I think that's a major thing. However, at the same time, people check their bank accounts. Uh, and when it comes there was a recent study by a group um, <laughs> study that it's it's by a group called the Fraser Institute. I don't know if you if you've come across them before. Um, they're a Koch brothers or Koch brother funded uh, group in Canada that does these very right-wing studies um, that there's studies in that they'll they'll compile all of the taxes that everybody in Canada including the rich pay and then they'll say here's what Canadians are usually paying in taxes uh, and it's more than they spend on groceries or something like that when it has nothing to do with what Canadians usually spend on taxes so they made this new poll uh, or this new survey and they were trying to find out um, uh, they were trying to pr prove that people actually thought socialism would bring misery. And uh, so they asked people, do you think that a transition to socialism would be better for the economy? Uh, and what they found was that across all age groups, more people agreed with the statement than disagreed with the statement. And then when you put together the people who agreed with the statement and or were... Um, uh undecided that uh like there was sh shocking a shocking amount of a lack of 
animosity to so towards socialism and a shocking amount of, so of support for socialism in Canada. And similar findings have been found in other countries as well, like Australia. So you have this situation in which it looks like there's all of this extraordinary um, opposition to socialism. And then when people actually have a kind of chance to move in that direction or they 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 are asked if they would like to move in that direction, the results come out very differently. Now, in my view, the far right has only ever had oxygen in one sort of circumstance, which is when there's a stagnating status quo and the establishment seems to be okay with it. That's where the far right gets all of its oxygen. Um, when there's a democratic left option to uh, move things in a direction or some kind of decent option to move things in a direction where people can expect a higher standard of living for their kids, um, the far right usually doesn't have much oxygen. Now, right now, the far right has a lot of oxygen because we have a lot of these trends in which things are stagnant and uh, the establishment is very happy with their self-congratulatory and talking about their credentials and how terrible the far right is. And you have to vote for them to stop the far right, but they're not going to do anything for you. And that's a case in the United States and many other countries. It's turning into kind of the case in Canada um, or has turned into the kind of the case in Canada as well. Uh, so the far right gets a lot of oxygen right now. And I think in those circumstances, that kind of thing that you're describing there, where their personal truth is the thing mm -hmm. that is most important to them, absolutely does dominate until there's a chance for the story to change. And I think in that moment where there's a chance for the story to change, we saw a little bit of that with the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, the, the Jeremy Corbyn campaign, particularly in that election where he broke the Tory majority with his own party fighting against him. Like when there are these moments to actually put something else on the table, it's going to change the spectrum. I think a lot of that bullshit gets pushed to the side pretty fast. So I think what we're dealing with is a lot of hyper bullshit because we're dealing with a spectrum of options that for the most part is completely illegitimate. Uh, but as soon as something more legitimately working class gets on the table, I think a lot of that starts to vanish. But, but Colin and, and, uh, and Pascal, what, what happens though, when again, back to this moment of my personal truth, um, that is also part of, you know, kind of trauma culture, which is I have my truth. Hmm. Whatever I believe is mine. And like, this is something that you actually hear echoed in, in popular culture and uh, in popular, maybe pop science. You can have your truth, your own safe space of you, which is something that these guys are definitely navigating in with a lot of the rhetoric that they have. How do you break through that your own truth? Do you have anything to say about that, Toussaint? Um, it's in politics as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Kamala Harris said that Joe Biden would lean on her for her lived experience, which no one else mm -hmm. could give, which, which a lot of other people could give. Let's be let's be for that. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Colin. No, I'm just agreeing with everything you're saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Pascal, do you have a, a comment about that? No, I mean, I think that the, one of the ways that you pierce through this, this concept of, like, my personal truth is that you just try to bring objective analysis. Like, I mean, I think one of the strongest ways to refute this ridiculous notion is like, oh, capitalism will save the day. It's just like, and I, I, I say this all the time when I confront right-wingers, is that the period in time in American history 
what you say are the glory days in which women were in their place, men were able to provide for their kids, we had two family homes, everything was great, people knew what to do, is the time where literally we had the highest marginal top tax rate in American history, we had the most extensive social welfare state, and we had literally the most highest production of unionization in American labor than ever before. So it was the closest we ever had to a social democracy compared to any other time in American history. And if you think that's the good old days, then I agree with you, let's go back there. Because everything we've had that was not there was a miseration for most people. And I think that once you make that record clear, it becomes very difficult for these charlatans to explain their position. Because what they realize is that when you talk to, look at people like Frederick Hayek or Milton Friedman or all these other kind of neoliberal economists that came around right around the New Deal, you re, when you actually listen to what these men are saying is that they're basically saying that they want to have a situation where we can maximize misery so that a few number of people can have profit. You know, and, and, you know, it's actually quite almost diabolical, the rhetoric that they use to describe the, 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 the ideal economy they want to have. And once we move into neoliberalism, we see all this social fracture that causes all these, causes all these problems in American society that becomes, you know, replicated now into working class white spaces, because we do know that during Jim Crow, you know, those problems already existed for large numbers of black folk anyway, then now all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's the Marxists and the leftists. And oh, what are you talking? When have the Marxists had, when have Marxists or leftists had control over the political economy of American society to shape the way life is reproduced in this country? Well, does it, um, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead, Tucson. Oh, I wasn't going to say anything, but I, I will say this now. Did you know that 125% of all divorces are brought on by women? What about that, Pascal? <laughs> Did you know that most suicides are committed by men? And most difficult jobs are done by men? It's true. So what does that mean? You have you have facts. I have facts too, man. You never heard the women, the women that come out of this, they say all that crazy stuff. They do just yeah. pearly things. She is she's known for coming up with all kinds of statistics. No one challenges it, and they just fight over it like like lions over meat. So, so what does it mean that more <laughs> women disproportionately file for divorce? Women have now have the option to get out of shitty marriages. Oh, that's a bad thing. What's about <laughs> it's all these modern women who want divorces, but really it's it's about how true something feels yeah. and My for a lot of people for a lot of people a fact is something that feels really 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 true well you know what's an interesting question while we were talking to the question about a super majority of women file for divorce compared to men what percentage of men cheat on their wives compared to women cheat on their husbands hmm. well i'll have you know it's 115 percent of all women <laughs> Cheat on there's, their husbands. There's, there's women that are more than one woman. Yes. <laughs> there are, there's women that are every woman. That's true. <laughs> Mary, when Mary J. cheats, that's for like seven women. That's true. I've, I've learned a lot today. <laughs> <laughs> so do we call these people, should we call these people Pascal? Should we call them uh, peddlers of misery? Hmm. Kind of like... No, I mean Misery vultures in a way because they're they're taking these miserable people, especially by the time we get to Andrew Tate. Because even let's just say, because there's something about Jordan Peterson where he seems a bit um 
cult leadery, beyond pastory. Like he's beyond pastor. Like he's he's in the realm of uh, who's the guy that started Scientology? Uh, L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah, he yeah. feels he feels like the the new L. Ron Hubbard. Like that would be his goal. Some of these other guys are just it's it's just a pyramid scheme, as many people have been saying in the chat. But ultimately, they they all have an audience, and this audience is, you know, this disaffected group of people, large group of people that don't know what to do because the world they're looking at is very unforgiving rents are extremely high i had a, had a patron call gentleman and his spouse made good money a lot of money combined can't buy a house in the san francisco bay area so not every family is going to look like that so what is happening to people that live in major metropolitan areas where the work is that can't afford to live in these places yeah. The atomization of gig work, which we never talk about. Mm -hmm. So no longer do we have a shop floor where we congregate. Unions are a thing of the past for the most part, unless you work in the trades. So so really, um, it feels like these people are misery vultures. And why don't we call them yeah. that instead? And why don't we call this space, you know, the misery space opposed to the manosphere? Because maybe giving these things yeah. more apt names will make people start to look at it a little differently. That's a great idea. I completely agree with that. Yeah. That's I mean, for me, I'll be very honest with you, is that there's, there are clear reasons rooted in political economy while we have large numbers of disaffected men in terms of their inability to find work inability to find work that is meaningful inability to find work that actually allows them to you know get married start families and all that stuff and no one is saying that that's an optimum situation you know, our, the argument that we have on this show is that we we actually agree that it is problematic that a whole gender of individuals in american society feel that they are totally dislocated and unable to actually find fulfillment. The right. argument that we're simply making is that that problem is rooted in the way in which the political economy of American capitalism shifted in a certain way in the later part of the 20th century into the 21st century that divorced the capacity of men mm -hmm. to find stable labor and raise families from the reality of their lives. And the only way we can fix that is to reorganize the political economy that we have in a way that creates a quality of life so that men and women can subsidize their lifestyles with equity in an economy that allows them to reestablish participation in society through family life and everything else. And a simple silver bullet solution like join DSA or vote for Bernie is not going to do it. It's going to require a serious organized movement-based politics that provides profound, deep, transformative alternatives to the yeah. current socio-political and economic status quo to remedy the current conundrum that we're in. But doesn't that also speak to, again, the need for heroes, regardless of where you are? Bernie Sanders is going to save you from a neoliberal hellscape. Uh, Donald Trump's going to save you from a neoliberal hellscape. Andrew Tate's going to help you get money to save you from a neoliberal hellscape. Jordan Peterson is going to show you how to clean your room so you can get a wife. 
and you can at least have some physical comfort in the neoliberal hellscape. But there's all of these heroes and not a lot of coalition building. Yeah. Let's, I, I want to end with this. Why are these heroes, maybe that's the wrong word for these, for the demagogues, still so powerful and coalition building in the COVID era, they're still in the COVID era, is so non-existent? Well, I, I think something that we've talked about before, Jason, is that everything from our spiritual narratives, sometimes biblical narratives, to our great man of history narratives, dictate to people that we need to have some shining figure on a horse with armor come and save the day. And I think that the idea of the power of the people en masse to change the status quo in a transformative way is something that is divorced from narratives that are salient in the consciousness that we learn in the West because those types of movements are considered subversive, dare I say revolutionary, or quote-unquote violent. And I'm not saying that we should necessarily be advocating that at all. What I'm saying is that the, the, the understanding that people have the power to disturb hierarchy, to increase equitable quality of life, is something that is very threatening to those who profit from the hierarchy status quo. And that is one of the main reasons why we don't see narratives about cooperative work. That's why it wasn't until my 40s that I heard about something called the Colored Farmers Alliance and the populist movement, because it was something that in all of my years of higher education, and I have a pretty decent amount of higher education, it was never mentioned in American, American history at all, that there was a period of time in which people in the South of different ethnic and racial backgrounds literally challenged the function of Southern, Southern capitalism. But you won't hear those narratives because they want to tell you about the great, you know, XYZ figure who owned, you know, five railroads and he was a wonderful businessman and not tell you the fact that how much government subsidy he got. Like, you know, what's his... Yeah. I mean, uh, I would agree with all of that. I think the other thing that happens is sometimes when we give history of progressive action that people really love, we also oversimplify it so that, for instance, um, the New Deal becomes all about just FDR and not all of the other stuff that happened along the way uh, and, and afterwards with unionization as well, which actually hit its peak after FDR. Um, in Canada, it's the same thing with uh, the party that formed the first socialist government in North America. It was Tommy Douglas's party in Saskatchewan. They were called the CCF, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. And they were um, an alliance of planning socialists, social democrats, and then cooperative, cooperative economy folks who came out of Often uh, agrarian movements were building farmers co-ops, credit unions, worker cooperatives, and were kind of grassroots, common sense, local practice socialists. And these groups were, they, they met these people where they were at, and they brought these groups together around a common agenda, and they built a, a coalition that was able to come to power, and then they stayed in power for decades. Uh, and that's where we got single-payer health insurance and other things from. But in Canada, the history of that gets really diluted, like... Tommy Douglas came along, said, wouldn't single payer health insurance be a great idea? Um, people went, yeah, that sounds nice. And 
uh, we got a really nice healthcare system, but now we shouldn't do any other kind of left-wing activism or organizing. And that's true of even like the contemporary NDP, our, our social democratic party. It's nowhere near as involved in this kind of progressive coalition building. And it's not talking about the fundamentals. It's not talking about things like the means of production and the different ways that working class people can control them and direct them the way those coalitions did in the past, which confuses issues further for people. So I think that what you're talking about is, I, I completely agree with it. And I would just say that like that's the history that I know of from Canada, where those kinds of coalitions were built to get really effective things done over a long period of time. Um, but I think that's the key to it. We have to meet people where they're at, show what we can do that builds on the stuff that they like and gets rid of the things that they don't like, what their options are and where their common ground is and how we can bring them together. Um, and we have to focus on that rather than a few shining heroes, whether we're talking about movements now or we're talking about the, the accounts of history that we give looking backwards. Well, thank you very much, Colin. Uh, that was a beautiful answer. That was Colin Bruce Anthus. Before we go, just so you guys know, every time we do a video, YouTube says, sorry guys, we can't put ads on this. <laughs> and, uh, it hurts a little bit. And if you'd like to show your support, MT, what do we have to for the people that would like to show support that maybe don't want to make the yearly or monthly Patreon contribution? Well, hey, that that yearly monthly Patreon contribution is there for you. It is good. It's a good first option. But if you're cold right now, <laughs> I can suggest a snapback. <laughs> I can suggest two different designs on a snapback, anti-capitalism and distress blackout. It's wonderful. We've got hoodies. Wearing a hoodie is the closest you can get to being at home while not being at home. <laughs> Never forget that. It's true. <laughs> We've got hoodies in different colors for you. We have mouse pads Pascal with Pascal's smiling. smiling face on it, along with a mug with his smiling face. We also have Afro pads. Um, oh. I'm sorry. We have Anglo pessimism. No Afro pessimism here. No, my brother. <laughs> so we so you we are gonna be, thank you very much, MT. <laughs> we will be. And Colin, by the way, you you killed it. Let's just admit. Here it comes. <laughs> Well, now I'm definitely buying the merch. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to be going into the champagne room where we can do this. Where we know this, the champagne room is going to get totally demonetized, and that's fine. Because we had so much fun with Daniel Mate on Friday. You guys actually saw the show on Saturday, but we had the conversation Friday about 90s hip-hops and, na and, and native tongues and music and where it comes from that uh i found out some stuff about where some very important samples came from so we're gonna have fun pascal's gonna dance a little bit we're gonna play some some samples and see if you guys can recognize where this stuff is from uh 
What else do we got going, Tucson? We got the People's Playlist from that show. I know JB has added a ton of songs. I know Jordan's added a ton of songs. I got to jump in. Oh, my God. You haven't added any songs on the playlist? Not yet. Not yet. It's I gave a you guys good like the first already. 20 songs on that playlist. Yes, you did. The People's Playlist. It's a lot of fun. And if you are a friend of mine or a follower of mine, let's just say friend of mine on uh, Twitter, then you're part of the 80s soundtrack battle for tape deck supremacy that's going on. I got a whole chart now for the matchups. So that's been a lot of fun to do. So we're going to do all that. But before we're going to go to the champagne room, have a whole bunch of fun. Pascal's going to get his boogie on because he hasn't smiled this whole show. <laughs> Oh. No, my brother. So we got to get him. There you go. There you... <laughs> Colin, are you gonna? You're, you're, are you shutting it down? You coming with us? I'll be there. Oh my God, Colin! There's gonna be a lot of black stuff going on. You still gonna be there? <laughs> <laughs> I brought, I brought paper and pen. I'll take notes. Oh my God, you are gonna <laughs> impress all your friends. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. We'll see you guys in the champagne room in just a few minutes. And we are out. out. Peace.